Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, so we got someone in the studio today who makes New Haven tick every day. Her name is Arlevia Samuel. She's executive director of the Livable City Initiative. That's LCI, and that's what most people know it as. And I always have to check. I've covered LCI since it was created in the 90s. And I still have to check every time I write whether there's an E in livable or not. Because some people spell livable with an E and some spell it without an E. And you're without an E, right? We are. Okay. L-I-V-A. <laughs> okay. So our leave, it's, it's, it's a hot seat uh, job in government because you're right there in the grassroots in each neighborhood with people who have complaints about... Um, they have complaints about uh, building code, but you're also trying to build good housing and new housing that people create home buyers. Is that basically the realm of what LCI is these days? Um, that's some of us. Um, we have a abundance of programs outside of those things. I think we're most popular for the housing code enforcement part. Most people think we just do inspections, um, which we do. Code enforcement is a huge part of what we do. It's a very important part of what we do. It's um, integral to make sure that people have decent, safe, and sanitary housing. And our great inspection team is here to make sure that that's actually what happens for the citizens in our city. But in addition to that, we also do Section 8 inspections, which are inspections that are based upon people who live in Section 8 units or units with a Section 8 voucher. And we also have a residential licensing program whereby, <coughs> excuse me, where we're actually proactive and we go out to units that are being leased out by landlords for an income to make sure those units are also in compliance. So that all has to do with the whole world of making sure people are living in decent places, it, that the housing code is being followed. And Section A is the federal rental subsidy program. So I guess we're under contract with the housing authority for that? or That is correct. We are contracted to perform all the housing authority Section 8. And Victor Smith, yes. who's listening, thanks for listening, says you were a basketball star? <laughs> uh, something like that. Tell me about, <laughs> tell me about that. Um, I played high school basketball at Hill House. Um, and I played college basketball at the University of New Haven. Go Chargers. Wow. So what, what position were you? Uh, center. And you, center. Oh, that's right. You are kind of tall, right? Just a little bit. Like, are you, how Six tall two. are you? 6'2". Six 6'2". Two? Yes. So in women's basketball, like what's an average center? Like the WNBA? Uh, now? <laughs> like 6'7", six, 6'6". Six, six. And when you were coming up? Anything, there was no NBA, Anything over NBA. six feet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I remember when I started following basketball in the uh, 60s, like Willis Reed, who just died, he was a center, and he'd go up against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and uh, or Will Chamberlain, and he was only like six, nine or ten. And I remember the New York Nets had this guy Billy Pulse. He was like six eight. You could be a center in those days. I wonder why that's changed. Uh, now it's just people have gotten so people tall. grow bigger. <laughs> <laughs> people seem to start growing taller. <laughs> so what what do you remember about your basketball days? In some ways, you know, people always and this gets trite sometimes. Or leave you. People talk about sports as a metaphor for life. Sometimes it's just sports, right? It's fun to play games and try hard, and it's fun to win and be part of a team. But were there, um, is it a stretch to say there were lessons from you that you developed from being a basketball player? Um, absolutely. I think being a student athlete is probably an integral part of who I am today. It's a big part of my position now because my, a big thing with me is I'm all about team. And Elsie, I don't refer to my staff members as my my staff or employees we're a team everything works together we're only as strong as our weakest link and that's very important on a team on a basketball court you're only as strong as your weakest player and you're a coach now 
I not not currently, but I no coach at LCI. I went into coaching. Oh yes, I am the head oh, coach. Oh, what kind of coaching did you? What kind of coaches you used to do? <laughs> I've coached several teams. I coached at East Rock. I coached at Wilbur Cross as an assistant for the um, girls basketball team, and at Hill House uh, as assistant for the girls basketball team, where we won three state championships in a row. All right. And um, I'm not currently coaching, but there's a possibility that I will get back into it. In so, the what is the role of a coach? You know where I'm going here, making the metaphor with government. So, what what do you what do you take from being a coach to to leading and and a, you know with, with a different kind of court? What's most important to me with being a an effective manager or leader is you have to involve your team. You have to know your team, and I think it's very important to encourage them. Everyone needs to be involved. But to get to all of that, you have to know and be able to do everything that each member of your team is expected to do. So it's important to me that anyone you're supervising or you're over, you can do their job as well because you shouldn't supervise a position that you cannot do. So it's good for a basketball coach to have played basketball. Well, every coach can't play and every player can't coach. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> That's a good point. It's, um, well, it says of the reporters and editors, like it, it is a pretty good idea to have been a reporter it but is. often people who are really good at reporting are not necessarily good at editing and vice versa. Like my one of my early mentors, I was just with him the other day, he said he was a terrible reporter. He'd get all nervous having to write an article. But all I remember from him, because I was young, was how great he was at teaching me how to write an article and how to make it better and how to direct the person. It really helps to have the experience. Because even if you didn't feel or you weren't the greatest at it, you picked up some things. And you never know what the things that you picked up, who they will help along the way. You may have strengths that you don't realize you have that are really effective for someone else coming up. Mm-hmm. And it's another thing with the team aspect because everyone doesn't carry the same strength. But if everyone's working together, we share our strengths. We help someone else out with their weaknesses. So it's like we're all in it for the same goal. And once everyone begins to realize that we are in this together, I'm in it with them. I have their backs and everyone starts to buy into the team concept. LCI is getting stronger and we're growing. And uh, do you, and it's okay if nothing comes to mind. Do you have to remember a game when you were either a player or a coach where something happened that you'll never forget that taught you about the role a coach can play in leading a team? It's okay if nothing comes to mind of like that day you'll never uh, forget on the court. You know? Nah, not right now. No, it's okay. <laughs> we're talking to Olivia Samuels, Executive Director of Livable City Initiative. That's LCI in New Haven, and that's the agency that we see really most directly in addition to police officers in a neighborhood. I don't mean to say you're cops. I just mean those are the people dealing with issues that arise in neighborhoods at the neighborhood level. You have neighborhood specialists and code enforcers. So you say you, so that LCI is growing. Tell me about that. Is the staff growing? Is the number of initiatives you're taking on growing? Um, both, actually. Um, we Over the last two years since I've been the permanent executive director, we have increased our positions, our staffing, we have several new project managers. Um, we have several new inspector positions. We increased our neighborhood specialist. Um, so grown. what's the number from what to what? We are now, I believe, up to 52 positions. Five, two? I believe so. Oh, wow. And what, what was it when you took over? Um, I think like 42, maybe. 42, okay. 43. And it was a tough time with the pandemic. What, a lot of people weren't even going out and, and people were, you know, not working and we never stopped working we didn't close <laughs> <laughs> we were out here as we are every day we did we never shut down so tell me about these 10 new positions what are people doing um we have three new project managers um one john's here with me he's our marketing he's um and you're going to see a nice beautiful lci promotional marketing campaign beginning in the city shortly 
got some really great stuff coming through. What's the message you guys want to put out? That we are here for you. We are in the community. We're a part of the community, and we are here for you. Mm -hmm. We also have um, Candace. Candace is our project manager for our new below market registry program. I'm sorry, blue market registry? Below. Below market registry. Yes. What does that mean? That is a program where she's actually currently started her research amongst New Haven and all the cities that touch us, where she's seeking out every affordable unit available, and we're forming a database for this. Oh, this is interesting. And to match that database, we will also, once we've gotten the units up, we're going to start having people who've been, who reach, who meet the qualifications for those affordable units. So it'll end up being a database for people to look for apartments that are affordable within the region, but it'll also allow landlords to find people who meet the criteria for those affordable units. So this is kind of interesting. So you're looking at a, at a, at a challenge people are facing in our city right now, which Absolutely. is to find affordable housing. And in addition to working on it in other ways, such as building housing, you're also trying to f make that match. Where do people go now? What is the pr what is the challenge you're addressing? Do people not have a good central place to find apartments and do landlords not have a good central place to find afford renters needing affordable housing? It's currently very hard. I mean, people do go to 211. Um, if you know someone, community action agency, sometimes there are, you know, someone will know there are a few units here or there, but there's no specific database where you can literally go to just to find those units okay. or those tenants. And I know we have a shortage in town. How bad is the shortage? How hard? I know that there are, you know, 30,000 people on a public housing waiting list, but are, are, if you're right now someone who, you know, drives a bus or works in a cafeteria, how hard is it to get a place you can afford with your family in New Haven? Uh, my understanding, it's pretty hard, and which is why we also initiated our security deposit program. Tell me about that. Um, we offer up to two months security deposit, which is up to a maximum of $5,000 for someone moving into a unit in New Haven. And with that, we also offer up to $1,500 for a utility deposit. And what kind of people can get that? Do you have to earn below a certain amount? Yes, you have to be at, um, at or below 300% of the federal median income. And what is, do you know what that is? Okay. And Arlie, I'm going to ask you to get real close to the mic just so we can hear you a little How better. How closer can I get? Yeah, well, you know, it is almost a touch. You know, you <laughs> speak, you do speak softly. And that's I okay. I do, I'm sorry. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to apologize for speaking softly. It's nicer than yelling at people. Um, <laughs> I don't, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you got a security deposit program. When did that start? Was that an was that a federal pandemic relief funded program? Yes, that is um, actually the three project manager positions are all three part of the ARPA funding. And ARPA is that federal pandemic relief American Rescue Plan Act. Yes. And uh, how many years does it go out? Through 2026. Oh, that's not bad. So that's a way to sort of take that money for something longer term. Yes, but hopefully, you know, by the time we get to 2026, the need will be our impact will be so great that we'll figure out a way to continue funding. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this security deposit plan and utility, how many people have been helped so far and how many can you help? Um, thus far, I believe we've taken in 130 applications of which um, 60 have been processed and there's approximately 30 in the pipeline right now. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's another program with that money so security deposits, and then there was eviction, like if you're facing eviction? That program, fortunately and unfortunately, I mean, the good thing is we did expend the full $865,000 um, allotted to us. Um, but unfortunately, we did run out of funds um, last month. And we just... So as you used all the money. You we did, everybody. but we did expend <laughs> all of it. And I'm sorry, did you mention the number of people who got help from that? 
I don't remember all the See, Coach, you're back on the court number. now. You've got to remember all the plays. So <laughs> if the point the guard is going to throw to the uh, to the I've, to I've the got, forward, you got to know who's got. I kind of jumped play. from when we ran out of funds. I jumped from Castle onto security deposit. Now, I remember during the pandemic, one thing um, everybody took heat from in the state, including the state government, was how hard it is sometimes to get money in people's hands. And it's not from anyone not wanting to do it. It's hard. Like you just mentioned finding affordable apartments. Yeah, you can fill the affordable apartments, but are the people going to find the landlord? I remember Governor Lamont had to do a lot of work on this with their eviction program because it's just it's hard to connect government to people. Have you learned anything about that in the job, about what those challenges are and how you how you reach people? Um, I think there were a lot of challenges initially with the COVID money in Castle because it was done so suddenly and the guidelines and parameters weren't very clear. So it was a really learning experience as you go. And I think with the ARP, it, we were ready for it. So we actually, we knew before we were, once we were told we could possibly get the money, we started planning for what we want to do with it. So we started planning our programs ahead of time. We went through the applications. We did everything we could to make it as user-friendly as possible and cut out anything that we could that would be considered excessive. And we also, going through the Board of Alders and approvals and everything, we put things into place so we don't have to go to the Board of Alders for approval for every single application. But we have a general approval, so we process the applications really quickly to get the checks out because it's really time-sensitive when someone's trying to move into an apartment. Right, so how do you get money? So now, this is not your bailiwick at all. I'm just wondering what advice that can be for the windfall now for people in local governments everywhere trying to get all this environmental money, green energy money, public infrastructure money, obviously not your bailiwick, but, I mean, it's just a historic flood of money coming out that the federal Biden administration is sending to build, fix roads and bridges, do recycling and, and green energy startups. Any thoughts along those lines for people who have jobs like Arlevia's in other governments or in our government about how to make sure that money gets to people faster? It's really about teamwork. If you're working together with all the departments or other entities that are involved in getting the money out, making sure your application process is streamlined, everyone knows what's expected of them and things are in order, it moves rather quickly, especially you have an emphasis on the importance and time sensitivity of the matter. But then again, everyone also has their own different regulations and rules to follow, which have a big impact on how long things take. We're talking to Olivia Samu, who's the head of LCI, Livable City Initiative in New Haven, the first place where the rubber meets the road, where government tries to keep people living in good situations in neighborhoods and having safe neighborhoods. You know, I thought about your predecessor. You talked about how long sometimes things take. You have to go to the Board of Alders to do everything. I remember... Serena, your um, predecessor, it was really during her tenure that this new, I would call it a problem for the city occurred when out-of-town investors who just bring in tens of millions of dollars a year from investors from other parts of the country and the world buy up our low-income property. And their business model is to churn through it fast, buy other properties, get those Section 8 rents, but put as little as money into the property as they can to spawn new ones. And then you guys are left chasing them for what are the conditions of those buildings, hope they don't get every property. I remember Serena used to tell me that if she wanted to make sure that a property on the market didn't go to them, she, she had to go through months and months of approvals. You have all these boards. You have an LCI board. You have a board of Alders committee. You got a board of Alders itself. Sometimes you go to city plan. Whereas the mega landlords have cash. Some buildings there, they pay it that minute. And it's kind of hard to compete. <laughs> Uh, what's a, is that still the situation for you guys? Um, it's mm, pretty much the same. I mean, they still have their money, they have their investors, and they can go out and buy a property at the drop of a dime. 
um, we've been fortunate enough where we've made some purchases, but there's also been an increase of local investors, people, smaller people who are actually vying to buy properties now as well. And some of those mega landlords have kind of shifted their focus now to trying to dispose of their properties rather than keep them at this point because they want to do different things because I, <laughs> they're kind of tired of dealing with us. Um, <laughs> because while they can buy them, we can enforce that they take care of them. Mm -hmm. And that's a big job. What do we got, like 49,000 households in New Haven? Approximately. So and how many structures do you guys have to, like even without complaints, how many structures are you supposed to look at every year? Is it every two years under landlord licensing? Well, residential licensing, it depends upon how good of a landlord is, how good their properties are. If it's every one, one two, or three years, depending upon oh, right. how the On property their record. is. And how many properties are we talking about? And that's approximately 9,000 um, we're currently at. We're depending upon the size of the property, we go into 25% or 50% of the units, but that's just been recently increased to going into approximately 50% of the units with the hopeful, the plan is to graduate to doing 100% of those units. Do you remember the joke with Church Street South, the project they had to tear down, it was 299. I know it's not a funny situation, but the tenants there used to laugh because every time a HUD, the federal agency came to inspect, They'd go to the same door every time. It was just about the only apartment where there wasn't 20 years of leaking roofs <laughs> destroying the place. And they always Stuff pass. like that is why I feel it's important that I, we increase the number of units that we're going into for residential licensing. My thing with that is the landlords are forced to pay for every unit. It was a part of their license, and we should go into every unit because we're not clearly. You can go into 10 units of a 30-unit unit building, but there's no guarantee that those 10 are representative of all the units. How do you get enough people for that? So how many inspectors do you have doing residential license inspections? Well, our, all of our inspections, all of our inspectors do all, all of the inspections. So there's no one assigned to just residential license inspections. And how many inspectors do you have? Twelve. So I guess I remember a few years ago, again, this before you came, I believe, I could be wrong. One way they tried to help with that load was to do what you just described, have a tier system. If someone's basically doing a good job with their properties, you'll come every three years and more can you really get to every property? Like, I can't even imagine how the math works. It's impossible to get to every property. That I mean, that's impossible. This is just residential licensing is our proactive. This is where we're proactive. We're going out before we don't get a call for these units. We're going out to look into these units where housing code is based upon only complaints calling in and someone calling for us to go out and Section 8 is based upon the Section 8 voucher. So this is where we're being proactive. We're going into units that we know are rental units to check them and we do need to go into a higher percentage, which is what we plan to do. And at some point, as we increase those percentages, we're going to need to increase our staff because it's impossible yeah. to handle all three sets of those inspections with just 12 inspectors. And then you said these same inspectors also do the complaints. Correct. So how many complaints do you get a year? Do you know? Or I'm asking you a lot of numbers. It's okay if you, you don't have them off the top <laughs> of your head. It's okay if you don't know them off the top of your head. I'm just wondering. I try to do the math. I'm not good at math. Remember but I correctly, the housing code was about 3200 how do you get year. how do they get to all these yeah. i mean they schedule them and we get out there i mean we do after hours we do weekends we do hot like we don't close we we work around the clock mm -hmm. and there must be burnout with the staff now in terms of the coach role like how do you stop the inspectors from burning out um we do fun stuff too and what? i actually created a new position um we now have a senior housing code inspector as well which kind of is more support to the inspectors and support to the deputy director as well we have a full admin team for the administrative side, and all of our departments work together very well. All right, Levy, you've also been building housing. That's always been a part of LCI. 
how much housing are you able to build and where are you doing it? I know we've written some articles about some nice places where you build a house on a lot that otherwise would have gone to a mega landlord like you had on Winchester Avenue, and then you're able to get working families to buy it. You can help them actually buy the property. Yes, we've done pretty good at that. We have the houses on Winchester and Thompson, Judith, Judith Terrace. Terrace yeah. We are um, currently, we have the three houses on Grand Avenue, which we're going to start um, looking into those for to start their development once we go out the bid and everything. We're looking to start um, Thompson and Winchester, oh, Star, I'm sorry, Star and Winchester Phase 2. That should be another 14 units. And then we're going to start looking to see where we can go in the other neighborhoods as well, to spread out. So one thing I always wrestle with in my mind when I cover issues of the sort that you deal with is the gentrification dilemma. So I could be wrong, but we don't have classic gentrification in New Haven. And that classic gentrification, tell me, because you're in the field, you know if I have this right or not is when you're actually kicking somebody out of a property because you can make more money renting to someone wealthier because of change. It's like in Brooklyn when they turn off the heat and all that kind of stuff to get someone to run out so they can charge twice as much. We haven't had people displaced for the most part, correct? We have stuff built on vacant property. Correct. That's what we do. But a lot of people do fear that if someone buys a property and it's a beautiful new space, the rents are going to be high and if the rents are priced out, then people are going to come in that can afford them and then their landlords are going to try to increase the rents and they're going to be priced out of their neighborhood or their community. And that's not what we're doing because our houses actually go to No, you're building houses working family, but talking yes. about like, but that's the whole dilemma too. So like, let's take um, Munson Street. So you have, a, you have, I think, hundreds of upscale apartments. So some people say, well, what about the other people? Will rents go up there? But then other people argue that building market apartments on vacant land will drive rents down elsewhere because there'll be enough supply. So, I mean, you're familiar with those arguments, right? And so people like right. me read it, you're actually doing it on the ground. So it, we hear the arguments, build, build, build. If you just build as much as you can, there'll be so much supply that that's the best way to keep rents down elsewhere on Munson Street. And, and then other people say what you were just talking about, when people are scared, well, no, if certain kinds of people move into a neighborhood and the culture becomes part of that neighborhood, it creates more demand for those people. So it's not, if you build more of that housing, more people will come. And in fact, people will be priced out. And you know, people like me don't really know what's true. And maybe it's not always true in the same way in every case. I mean, does, are people right that build, build, build will keep rents down elsewhere? Or are people right that uh, building upscale housing will make other rents go up? I think it really depends upon the situation because you can have where you're building a lot of units like on Munson Street and those are what they're calling luxury apartments at luxury rents but across the street we're going to have Ashram and Canal coming up the residences are at Canal Place and a full third of those units are affordable um, Winchester Lofts is going to eventually come up and they're providing some affordable units as well what you have is people are going to go where they can afford so no matter what the rents are, people who can afford those rents are going to go into them for those market rate units. But if they find they have difficulties renting them, guess what? They're going to have to decrease their rents to fill them. That's what happened in Fairhaven in the 90s, right? Remember that? So right. in the 90s, they built all these luxury condos and everyone said, you're gentrifying. They built them mostly on vacant land. And then most of them failed. And the investors lost mm -hmm. their money and it became apartments or condos for teachers and cops. Which is what happens. I mean... I it's gotta believe to that's gonna happen. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> just, I mean, three thousand Come on, <laughs> it's likely. But like I said, there is also affordable housing developments coming up in that same area. So, I mean, you're not gonna have an effective community or city if everything is affordable or if everything is market. 
you have to have a mix of the two because everyone has to everyone's not at the same income level so you have to provide something for everyone well i guess you gave me what i heard in your answer Olivia, is that you're trying to make sure when new housing comes in it's not just for wealthy people because you require affordable to be part of the you know, we have an ordinance on that. You guys yes. negotiate, and then you also actively do Beulah. You know, you do projects where yes. you do that. My question was partly what happens in a market. That whole argument about building more of market rate, whether that'll make the other rents go down or not, separate from your good efforts to interject affordable housing, to force affordable housing to be built. What happens with the market? Have you concluded anything after all these years of watching markets of whether building new market rate housing will depress or increase other rents? I've concluded that they go up and they go down. Okay. It's all a matter of supply and demand. And does new supply get, new demand get created when you build more supply? Or you're just meeting the pent up that's there? You're typically meeting what's there because of the huge amount that's needed at this time. So you're meeting the demand and you're supplying for a certain group of people who can, who fit for what you're looking for, your criteria. But then you have the others going up who are meeting another criteria. And at the end of the day, we should have a nice, diverse community. We're talking to Olivia Samuel, who has, that's her job, really, running the Livable City Initiative for the city of New Haven. What part of town did you grow up in? I grew up in Brookside, in the projects. And that would be a different story, right? I mean, they're so beautiful now. And you know, one thing... I think they were more beautiful when I grew up. Well, that's what I always wonder about. So everyone I know who grew up in Brookside talks about the days they'll never forget, the beautiful community that was there. But the story that was told from the outside that those were run down, neglected projects that had to be torn down and built into these new kind of um, Truman Show type developments. It was, it was prettier. It was a community. It was where everyone was a big family. Everyone knew each other. We all supported each other. It was totally different than what it is now. Like, okay, we had one way in and one way out, but <laughs> that was right, a part did, of living yeah. out the way. We had our fields we played in. We had the parks. We all met up from Brookside, Rockfield, Westfield Manor. Now it's just like, it's a, it's almost cold. It's like, it's just a different environment out there than what it was when we grew up out there. Is it the architecture or is it the world? I mean, like, I know. The architecture doesn't lead to the togetherness and openness that we experienced because there was a lot of open fields, a lot of open space. And we were able to see each other and go through it. And now it's just a lot of big buildings and mm-hmm. streets. We had one street. We didn't have all these streets. The only other streets were the, a few parking lots going into certain buildings. And it's not that way now. Now it's like you're just driving down any street in the neighborhood and you're turning here, turning there. But there's not a lot of open green space and play space and parks and That's stuff so for the kids to gather. What about, although you have West Rock Park right there. We played in the projects. We we had yeah. fields in front of our park, our building. We had fields over before you get to the park. We had to dump. We went over to the plate and we had the brook down there. It was, a, it was a lot different. It was more open space. And it's so interesting to me when I hear people talk about the community they wish we still had. And I think about policymakers like yourself and everybody's had your job and similar jobs. You know, we're all trying so hard to recreate that. Do you ever feel like we're pushing a rock up the hill that the world's gotten more atomized, that we don't have community same way? Like, I, I really like my neighbors. I don't hang with them. You know, it's like, I don't know, at the, the architecture's the same as when people did hang more with their neighbors, I don't know, at backyard barbecues or time. Or... It was different. Back then, it was okay to sit on your porch and talk to your neighbor. Now you sit out in your front yard and someone's calling the cops or LCI on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you like... ever come out there and it's, Olivia, I used to sit on the porch, it's okay. <laughs> so it's, it's a little different. Times, times have definitely changed. Okay. So you, you, you've, been a, you've had a lot of um, 
different kinds of jobs in real estate. So you come to this job with the experience of knowing what it's like in private estate. You work for Navarino Property Group, right? That's Justin, right, Goldberg? That's Justin, yes. And uh, and they rescued Dwight Gardens, and that was sad when the when the co-ops were failing, and yes. but they did a good job with they that. Did a beautiful job. There. What was your job in in private real estate? That you were a tax credit specialist, and you did real estate sales. No, that was with Chaffa. Oh, that was a chaff and that's the Connecticut Housing Finance Authority. Yes. So you know how government loans work when you want to do affordable housing. Yes. You also know what private real estate management, what did you do for Navarino? I was the director of real estate. What did that mean? I oversaw all of their, uh, the property management, the maintenance staff, the properties themselves, make sure our properties were in pristine condition. Our maintenance staff was doing their jobs. The residents were taking care over the leasing department, the property maintenance department. So it's like you say with the basketball player knew how to before knows what it's like to be at the court. You kind of know what it's like to fix get the door fixed and yes. And what what do you take from those years? I actually know how to fix the door too. Can you do? <laughs> yes. So you actually I, did maintenance? I always believe in working with my team. Had you done that as a manager or had you first been a ma- maintenance person? As I've never been a maintenance person, but when I my first property management job was property manager for Bridgeport Housing Authority in Charles Green Homes. And what I did was I went out with my maintenance supervisor and two of our janitors, and we went into every unit. That's where I learned to change light switch, learned how to do some light electrical work. And do you have to be pretty careful not to get electrocuted? I mean, when you take off those panels, so (laughs) did you wear like these heavy um, asbestos gloves or whatever? No. What'd you wear? Nothing. Really? (laughs) Really. Okay. (laughs) Really. It's simple. It's really simple. And is that something similar you do now? Do you go out with your inspectors? or how I, do you... I am a certified inspector as well. I do go out on inspections with my team. I do do pop-up inspections on my team. And, um, yeah, I, I do, anything my team does, I go out with my neighborhood specialist. I walk these city streets. I do everything my team does. So you took over the team first on an interim basis in October 2020. Correct. And that's when we were all kind of confused what the world was going to be like from minute to minute with the pandemic. That was that crazy first year before vaccines. What were your goals? When you came over, your goals more immediate? Like, I just got to keep the ship going. Everything's kind of crazy right now. Or did you have a vision when you came in? This is where I want to take it next. No. The initial was, okay, let's keep us together and float until they find a permanent director. (laughs) Oh, permanent director. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so you kind of were the interim coach. Yes. All right. And and did that evolve into something else? Did you know at the beginning you were going to want to be the permanent? I did. What changed your mind? They say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll work the, I'll, I'll take on the responsibility. Um, actually, honestly, a huge part of me um, deciding to accept the permanent position was my team. A lot of my team members came to me and asked me, and were like, you got to stay. You got to take it. You're doing a great job. We're growing. We're improving. We're doing better. And I saw the changes and things that were going on. And so it was more so for my team that I initially took it. You know, so I think LCI, its history has been one of so much like inspiration and um, idealism and controversy, not since you took over, but when it formed, and I remember when John Stefano formed it, he had done some really hard thinking. He had said, our cities like ours aren't gonna grow anymore, so that, let's make it better for the people who are still here. And so he, pe- they, people, they sold people side yards. They knocked down, they made the city smaller, they demolished housing, they did community gardens, and then a few years later, cities like ours got hot again. People wanted to live in cities. So all of a sudden, that was out the window. We were growth again. And he combined the kind of real estate development, housing building, and inspection into one unit, 
with these kind of neighborhood specialists who are sort of like your local community cop, build on that model. Then it had controversy because of a corruption scandal in, in like 97, but then they cleaned that up and it got pretty strong again and respected. But the idea had to always evolve. Is it still the same idea of combining building housing and monitoring housing? And is that, a, is that the ideal way to structure government? Because some people say split it apart, have the building department do the inspections, have economic development do the housing. Other people say it's all one of the same continuum of work to be done in a neighborhood. Um, it is. Um, it works the way, I mean, it works fine as it is because we all, at the end of the day, we work together. I mean, there are issues that are beyond our scope. We call building. We work with fire. We work with health. Like all the our departments work together effectively. So I wouldn't say it's necessary to change things to move people to different departments or divisions. I mean, everything could always use some tweaking, but right now it works. And when there are issues, we work on it. We all meet as directors and we discuss with our team. You know, what can make this better? What improvements do we need? And we seek to put them in place to make things better for everyone because at the end of the day, you're never going to make everyone happy, but we do as much as we can to make it as easy as possible for the community because most importantly, it's how difficult we want things to be for the people we're trying to help. We don't. So it's our job to make our jobs easier and perform them more efficiently in a manner that's more convenient and conducive for the public. Can you think of a day since you had the job that said, this is why I do it? is why it's worth it. Yeah, you got to take a lot of flack anytime you're a government official, especially nowadays people aren't that polite. Um, I actually get a lot of those days because we, we do a lot of good at LCI. I mean, people, like I said, you're never going to make everyone happy at what you do. But my goal when I go into that office every day is to find whatever I do is making a positive impact on the lives of someone. So when I know my team or myself are making a difference to someone, someone calls and like, oh, such and such, so-and-so inspector came by and they did this and I was really pleased with them. Or if someone sends me an email, oh, your neighborhood specialist did this, they really went out of their way to help me. I love that. When someone comes in, they have an issue, and then I meet with them, and they're totally surprised because I'm so available. And then one lady, she was just like, can I give you a hug? I mean, she gave me like six hugs before she left the office. <laughs> that she was just so happy that she was surprised, I believe, that me being the executive director would actually take time, walk out of my office and come and sit with her for over an hour until she was comfortable and we resolved her issue. Things like that have a huge impact. Giving someone a security deposit helps them secure their first unit. Someone coming out to purchase a home that we just provided at an affordable rent who never thought there would be a homeowner, let alone a landlord. Those things, building a first house with partnering with the community development team. So all of those things make a difference and make it worth it. All right, well, keep those hugs in mind. Because being a public official nowadays, you just part of the job is taking a lot of flack. A lot of times you can feel like no one's going to be happy no matter what you do. But you grew up here. I did. And now you're back in those same neighborhoods where you grew up trying to make I, them better. I mean, the biggest part is take nothing personal. It's When someone's upset, it's usually it's not with me. It's not with my team members specifically. It's with the circumstance. All right. Well, hang in there, Olivia. Thanks for Thanks, coming Paul. on Dateline New Haven. I loved hearing all the stuff that LCI is up to. Is it? Thank you. And this next chapter. And thanks to text comments and thanks to Harry Joes for working the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.